If you will, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. I get the privilege to share the last piece of our Bible conference. And I'd like to speak on the topic before me about inreach. Now, my computer doesn't believe that's a word. You type outreach, and it's okay with that. You type inreach, and it always underlines it in red, and it gives me other suggestions. Uh, I don't want any other suggestions today. We're going to talk about inreach. And if it's a new word we start, we start it, and that's the way it is. Just put it in your little thesaurus, too, on your computer, and you can have it, too. Um, Jesus said this one day when he was talking with his disciples, a declaration was made that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded to that, to Peter and to those who were listening. And in his comments he made one statement that he is still doing now. He said, I will build my church. I love that phrase. As a, as a pastor... There's something comforting to know that it's the Lord who builds the church. This is his project. This is what he has done. He purchased it with his own blood. He has provided for it everything it needs. Ephesians 5 is a fascinating chapter to study on his attention to this church. Not just, I would say, locally like our fellowship, because we're part of the universal church as believers in Jesus Christ. We are what he is about, what he is building, the church, and the wonderful prospect. And it's more than just the prospect of maybe, but the actuality that someday the church will stand before him perfect. Absolutely perfect. And I love that reminder. Because when we look at the church in the current situation, we see people, don't we? And how many among us are perfect now? I'm looking for hands. I don't see any. We know he's still building. And so, the point that I get to share with you today has to do with in-reach. And it's a very important principle to begin with as we think this through. I'm going to set before you three pictures for you to think about and referred to them a few times, but especially the third, I will camp on that a little bit more than the rest. But here's one picture I could set before you mind. I don't have a PowerPoint to help you graphically, you know, see what's going on here, but I know your minds are incredible. You can picture a very healthy tree, can't you? A beautiful, healthy tree. You love that tree. Full of leaves, wonderful shade in the summer, uh, very nice tree. It's been in the family for a long time, growing out there in the backyard or whatever it is. Imagine someday a terrible storm comes through and that tree is blown over. And you find out that your beautiful tree has been rotted out on the inside for many, many, many years. And you didn't even know it. It's the wind that showed you that. But now when you see it, you say, oh my, outwardly it looked great. Inwardly, it had a terrible problem. We did not know. Got that picture? All right, set that there. 
because that's an important picture to teach about the issue of stability on the inside. Stability on the inside. That's important. The second picture I want to set before you is a general of a French army, also was the leader of their country, who liked to put his hand inside of his jacket like this. You know his name? His name was Napoleon. Napoleon, an incredible general. Incredible capabilities in warfare. At the time, he was dominant. We read of those things, and perhaps you're very familiar with the War of 1812. Why they keep playing that at our Fourth of July ceremonies, I'm not exactly sure, except that it casts cannons and it booms a lot and things like that. But the War of 1812 was between France and Russia. And the whole battle was about Napoleon coming to uh, Russia, invading the country, working his way toward Moscow to be the, the general who captures that great city. And what was fascinating about that particular battle, he travels nearly 1,500 miles with his army. And that's a difficult thing to have done back then. But 1,500 miles, winning battles as he goes... But he wasn't too uh, uh, aware of what was actually happening on the Russian side. For they kept retreating before him. And they, he would say, wow, you know, they're scared of me. They retreat again. They're scared of me. And it kind of drove him on and on and on deeper into that country as he went chasing a retreating army. But the army also was doing something else along with the folks of the land, and that was they were burning their crops. Something significant happened when they got to Warsaw. There was no one there to greet him, which, just, which surprised him greatly, because of course they had to surrender. No one was there to surrender. The city had emptied. And now he's 1,500 miles away, outran his supply line, and there's no food because they had burnt all the crops as they went. Oops is right. We read often about his retreat back to France and the great Waterloo and all that transpired there. But see, he overreached his supply line. He went further than what his army could be supported by. Is that a problem? It's a big problem. It's a major major uh, blunder when it comes to strategies. Overreaching your supply is trouble. Third picture. And maybe Andy should come and tell us this one. It's about rowing. She knows that very well. Uh, she's on an excellent team that's won in their competition. Highest level you can. Fascinating. I don't know if her team is that which works with eight in the boat with a, a leader or such. I, I've never asked her. I learned everything on Wikipedia that I can about rowing. I read that article and I said, well, I've seen him go once down the river in Oklahoma City, so I think I should know a little bit. At least I know it's best to be in the boat and not falling out of it. But I do know this from just observing a little bit about what they are all about. You need precision. 
you have to be working in some sort of a, a system together. The oars have to go together. They, whether they're pulling in the water, they have to match force, they have to match even their breathing techniques, and they have to be physically fit to do it. There's an awful lot more to it than just getting in a boat with an oar and going down the, down the river. It's quite an incredible picture. But break down that, that concept of all of those working together with precision, with the same strength, with the same health, moving forward as a team, break it down at any point in its precision. Break it down with unequal force on a single stroke, perhaps, or in the recovery phase after they have made the stroke, or a carelessness where one is not breathing as the rest of them would breathe. Sounds simple to us. Put in one rower that's not physically fit. Put one rower in that sits backwards in the boat and goes the opposite way. Can you picture that one at least? Seven of them going this way and one going that way. What kind of progress do you make? Not very much at all. That is true. Not likely to win like they did. You lose efficiency. You destroy teamwork. Everyone else has to work so much harder to compensate for the one that's going the wrong way. And still, the, the drag on the entire uh, technique is there. It's, it's just reality. The race is gone. The race is gone. Because one is in the boat backwards. So I set those three pictures before you, a tree, Napoleon, and the rowing team in the boat. He said, what do they have in common? They have an awful lot in common when it has to do with inreach. Let me explain how this works. The mission of the church is growth and outreach. We know that. We had quite a bit of information on that yesterday. We have a powerful gospel and it was passionately presented before us last evening that we should go forth with that message. Not hesitating at all. Proclaiming the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That saves souls. That's what we are. Saved souls. And somebody shared that gospel with us. And we're so thankful for their outreach into our lives. We know that. Outreach is vital. But what about in-reach? In-reach. There is a real challenge. If not a disaster, if we neglect our in-reach as well. Healthy outreach is dependent upon a healthy church. We can look good on the outside with every program that reaches out to everybody like a tree and be rotted on the inside and collapse under any kind of pressure. You know, the best thing we could ever give to our missionaries is a healthy church here. You say, well, why? Because the missionary out there is dependent upon what we provide for them. If we fall apart, the provision's not there. If the provision's not there, they're in ministry without support. Very much like an army where its supply line breaks apart. They're dependent on us 
to be healthy. I've seen that many times over the course of the years. How an unhealthy church creates very difficult aspects for outreach ministry. Very difficult things. We must be stable. We must be solid on the inside. We must, must maintain that spiritual supply line that we're all growing and that we're all providing for one another. We must work as a team. Those are all givens, I believe, when it comes to church operation. In Thessalonians, we read in chapter number 5, in verse number 14, about what I'm going to characterize as three people. I'm going to make it simple for us today. Three people. Three people that generally, if they were among a congregation, and they were having great amount of difficulties, and maintaining their well-being was an enormous task, a draining task, uh, a long-term task. There are some who get tired in the process, who grow weary in doing good, as Paul has said that in other places. And they think that, you know, our church would be better off if, and you know the rest of the line, don't you? if they weren't here. Sometimes that's considered when somebody is, well, in sin, and it's an open sin, and everyone knows about that, and they're trying to deal with it, and we think, well, it's better if we just get him out of here. Sometimes it's those who just seem to be an enormously heavy spiritual burden and they're constantly difficult to work with. You can't really find a good reason to throw them out. But at the same time, you sure wish that they'd find a reason to go someplace else. And I know I'm not speaking to people who've never seen that before. But it's true. Especially in larger places where there are many churches. It's easier to say, hey, have you considered that place down the street? I think they have a program just for you. And we encourage them at times. Now, maybe not verbally, maybe not actually, but in our hearts sometimes we wish. You know, what we need is all the healthy, strong, busy ones, right? Not the challenges, not the difficult ones, not those that seem to keep getting into trouble. We don't, we don't want those kind among us. I'm being uh, very sarcastic for a moment, you realize. Because the three that I'm going to introduce you to in Thessalonians were in the Thessalonian church. The Thessalonian church was a church you would have loved to have been a member of. It was a young church. It was a dynamic church. Its outreach was incredible for a very young church, which we assume to be like months old, not years, but months old, when Paul writes to them and he says, Already, your testimony has gone far beyond your community. It's throughout the whole world. They hear of you. They know what you have done, how you've turned from idols to serve the living God. They know of your love and they know of your faith and they know of your hope. And it's so pronounced, it just radiates from your congregation. Congregations all over the world are seeing you and, and following your example. That's all in chapter 1. Everything Paul tells them to do, they do it. And they do it right away. And they do it with zeal. 
I think, wow, what a great church this is. They were still in the process of training leaders. And they were already in this kind of an operation mode. Their outreach was phenomenal. Their health on the inside looked terrific. They had questions. They were growing. But after Paul dealt with the questions, he came to the point of some of the people. And he says in verse number 14 of chapter 5, he says, We urge you, brethren. Now, just so you know, he is addressing the whole church. He's not talking to the pastor. He's talking to the church. He says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And then he adds, Be patient with everyone. Three people I introduce you to. One is Mr. Unruly. Mr. Unruly. And the second is Mr. Puny Soul. And the third is Mr. Do-No-Nothing Deadweight. He's got a hyphenated name there. Mr. Do-Nothing Deadweight. These three are referenced in this verse as I explain them to you. Now, their outreach, if you put it on a grade card, it'd be excellent scores all the way across. If you talked about their effort, the grade card would have excellent grades all the way across. Their cooperation? Well, this is where it gets interesting. Put the word help in your vocabulary right here. Help! They've got a problem. They've got a problem addressed in three people, primarily, characterizing them. Now this church, just so you get a feel for this, I've already explained their their highlights. Do you realize that all of this has taken place under some of the most intense persecution a church can have? The, The town of Thessalonica, the city of Thessalonica threw the Apostle Paul out the door. Told him not to come back. Matter of fact, they said, if you come back, we're going to take the goods from the people of that church and made them all sign bonds to say that they would surrender their businesses, their properties, their wealth, if the Apostle Paul came back to town. That's pretty serious, isn't it? There were false teachers that crept in among them, causing all kinds of trouble in that congregation. They didn't go a single day without persecution. Everyone knew it well. That church knew that well. They were under that kind of threat during the time they were growing the strongest. They were already growing and and rapidly growing as, as a young church, but they also were training leadership up as they went. It wasn't that Paul could plant a seasoned uh, pastor or elder in that congregation. They were just as old spiritually as the first guy who was saved in that town. They were young, inexperienced. And by the way, they didn't even have the New Testament to fall back on to get their information. It hadn't been written yet. So you can appreciate some of the challenges this church had. They had to learn how to support their pastor that uh, was designated among them. And then in the midst of all that hard work, which was day and night, 
and their own labors of their of their of keeping their families and providing their jobs and all the rest that went with this whole story. This was a full time ministry, and then you have Mr. Unruly and Mr. Puny Soul and Mr. Do Nothing Deadweight sitting in their pews. Their inreach was vital. Vital. So let's talk about these three for a few minutes and get a feel for who they are and for what Paul says about them. In verse 14, we say it, it, we see the words, admonish the unruly. Here is an interesting guy. guy. He, he does not follow the order. He does not follow the order. He, he's out of ranks. He's out of step. Seven people are rowing one way and he's rowing the opposite way. He, he's irregular. He's deviating from the uh, pattern that everyone else is involved in. Now, this is a growing church, a spiritual church, intense on understanding God's Word and doing it. He's doing the opposite. He's unruly. By the way, he probably learned that from a group that they brought in from the marketplace. According to the book of Acts, they, brought, they hired, believe it or not, the, the enemies went into the marketplace and hired some unruly men to come in to that church. And this man learned their tricks. He was part of it now. He went opposite. If you say painted green, he says painted red. And he's doing it while you're painting green. He, he, he's contrary to everything else going on in the, in the midst of it. There are people like that that show up from time to time in churches. Do you believe that? It's possible. Mr. Unruly. There's Mrs. Unruly too, by the way. There are plenty of unrulies who will intentionally, at times, go opposite where everyone else is going. There are sometimes they do it unintentionally. There's a, a book I'm enjoying on, on my uh, desk right now. I'm reading through it called Unintentioned, or it's called Unintentioned Dragons. I believe that's the title of it. Uh, you may say, well, that's interesting. Now, it's not that I'm trying to learn some trick to how to handle Hillsdale Bible Church, but it talks about dragons in the church. Whether they're intending it or not intending it, they're drags in ministry uh, by some of them being just plain old obnoxious. They plan to go against the flow no matter what. I've met people like that. I've met people like that determined. They were going to vote the opposite no matter what. If it was right or wrong, it doesn't matter. They thought it was right that we always had a dissenting vote. Mr. Unruly exists. And he operates. How do you minister as a team when you've got him in your boat? All right, that's Mr. Unruly. Mr. Faint-Hearted comes along here. You might have the word faint-hearted here. Uh, his puny soul is the Greek word. It's a combination word. He, he's puny. Puny in his soul. He quits. Easy. He's always downhearted. Boy, when he comes, it's like a cloud follows him. He's always down. You feel exhausted after talking to him. Because you've tried your best to try to get him up, and it doesn't work. 
is just, oh, he's heavy to carry, isn't he? Mr. Puny Soul. You put him in a boat with you and you're all rowing along just fine and he goes about 15 yards and he says, oh, I just can't anymore. And he collapses in your canoe. He, he, he just doesn't have the stamina. He doesn't have the stability. He drops out a lot. He quits a lot. And just when you have assembled your team to do this ministry and you've gone out with these, these people, each one doing their part to do this thing, he's the one that goes halfway with you and quits. And now the others have to make up for a hole. You know how that works? The Apostle Paul knew that once. He had a team with Barnabas and another man named John Mark. And they went out into some pretty tough territory, if you read about the Galatian ministry. Oh, a tough place. Paul was stoned there once, by the way. That's a pretty tough crowd. And as soon as they started in on that, John Mark quit. He went back home. That resonated in Paul's heart for a long time. Matter of fact, it split up a team. Why? Because Mr. Puny Soul was with them. And you say, weren't we better not, weren't we off better with Mr. Puny Soul staying home? Weren't we better if we didn't include him on the team? Mr. Puny Soul is in your boat, folks. What are you going to do with Mr. Puny Soul? Let's add one third person here. And this is Mr. Do Nothing Deadweight. <laughs> You've seen him before, haven't you? Oh, he comes, but he does nothing. He just sits there. Nothing. Matter of fact, the word for it is, he has no strength. Now, we talked about this last week when we were talking about the passage in Romans. No strength doesn't mean he provides you with a little help. He gives no help. None. He's, he's about as useful to you as that paperweight you've had on your bookshelf for all these years and you've never used it. That's Mr. Deadweight. He said, well, why would we want him in the boat? That's like dragging the anchor. Why do we want Mr. Deadweight in there? You know, if he puts his row, his oars in the water, that's friction, that's difficult. You've got to go against that while they're just dragging there and they're moving not. What do you do with a deadweight? said, well, we're better off without deadweight. Mr. Deadweight is in your boat. He's in your boat. What do you do with him? You see, the solution sounds easy. Well, Mr. Deadweight, we need to get him out of the boat. Mr. Punito, we, we need to get him out of the boat. Mr. What was our first one? Unruly. Good. Mr. Unruly, let's get him out of the boat. Then it's easier, right? Somehow we think subtraction is always easier. Our ministry is in reach. In reach is reaching toward those Mr. Unruly's, Mr. Puny Souls, and Mr. Deadweights to make them not what they are today, but make them assets to the ministry. 
to make them healthy in the body of Christ, to, to make them ministry strong, capable in leadership as well, pulling their weight, contributing to the ministry as we seek outreach. Notice the words that go before each of those names in first, or, yeah, chapter 5, verse 14, 1 Thessalonians. He says, admonish. Mr. Unruly. Admonish him. This is our ministry, folks. How, how do you do that? Paul says, well, I, I've got to help you with this. I've got to encourage you, Thessalonians, in this department alone. I'm going to come alongside and comfort and correct you and help you with this. As a church, you have a ministry. He didn't say, Pastor, you have a ministry. He didn't say, elder, you have a ministry. He says, brethren, you have a ministry. This is not something for just a few to take care of. It's for all of us to work together to solve. It's for the brethren to minister together. And by the way, these words, admonish, you're going to see. You're going to see the word encourage, and you're going to see the word help. And all of them in the Greek text are what we call present imperatives. That means keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on. Don't quit. Now, just by the implications of the word, the Thessalonians were doing that, but they were getting tired. They were getting tired. Of course, all that pressure from the outside, all that pressure from false teachers, all that pressure in raising up leaders among them, all that pressure of, of outreach ministry, all of that was on their shoulders in the first place. And now they've got to help these three. And they're tired. And Paul says, don't quit. <laughs> don't quit. Keep on doing this ministry. This is vital. Because if this breaks down, technically, folks, you might as well you know, forget the rest of it. Because it's not going to happen. It's unhealthy on the inside. Like a tree that collapses when it rots out. Like a man rowing opposite. You won't win the race. Like running outside of your supply line. You won't have what you need at the time you need it. These men, these three men, are important. Important enough to put a command next to it that you don't quit on them. You don't quit on them. Never quit on them. You have to warn Mr. Unruly. The word admonish is the, the word warn as well. And it means put it to his mind. Well, what's interesting is that this has the idea of counseling with the word of God. Now, honestly, that's the only way to counsel. I'll be honest with you. You counsel with the Word of God. There's a, a, a counseling program years ago it started up, but it's still operating today wonderfully. Neuthetic counseling has to do with going with God's Word to the needs of people. And that's the right way to do it. Don't you agree? Share the Word of God. That's our answer. That's our guide for life. We saw that yesterday. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path. How are we going to give them a lamp and a light if we don't share the Word? We have to. And this is what he says. When you've got Mr. Unruly among you, 
Take him to the Word. Take him to the Word. Show him what he ought to be. Show him what he is. Show him that he shouldn't be that way. Correct him. Lovingly correct him. Work with him. Teach him to do what's right, because maybe he doesn't know. You know, sometimes we assume that we know the reason, don't we? He's unruly because, well, it's what he eats in the morning. Or uh, it's the way he was brought up. Or we, we give a thousand excuses at times. Or we just assume he's just a cantankerous man and we just can't put up with him anyway. And he would never change. Scripture changes lives. You can yell at him. You can, can argue with him. You can go down any road you want. But if you don't take Scripture to him, he will not change. It's God's Word that changes life. Because it cuts down between the bone and the joint and the marrow. And it changes lives. It's changed mine. It's changed yours. And it can change Mr. Mr. Henry as well. But if we don't use the Word, it won't happen. Now, the congregation has the job. The congregation has the job of ministering to him with the word, admonishing him with the word, correcting him with the word, putting it to his mind. Yes, do it gently, but do it. I had a friend who was a a new pastor. He had spent most of his career as a uh, guard in a prison. Right? Back in those days, they had techniques to straighten up uh, prisoners. Uh, Things like throwing them against the wall and things, and I know that sounds terrible, but he took that into the church and said, boy, it was hard in an elders meeting. And I said, you can't do it. You just can't do it. He says, I know I can't do it. We had this talk every Monday morning. I'd go out and I'd eat with him because I was supposed to help him out and coach him a little bit because he was new and he's just down the street. And we're, we're talking every month. Every Monday morning he started with, I quit. And by the time we were done, he says, okay, I'll try another week. But he was one that was hard to work with. And you say, well, Mr. Unruly could be right here in the pulpit. Sometimes they go against the flow. Sometimes they walk against the the trend of Scripture. Who's going to talk to them and say, that's not how it's done? Who's going to counsel them with the Word of God? Because if they get that right, guess what? You don't have that problem anymore, do you? We're to admonish Mr. Henry. We're to set examples for him. Matter of fact, everyone in here should be an example of how not to be unruly. That way we can point to anyone and say, can't you be like them? Can't you be like them? They're just doing it the way Scripture says. We ought to be examples of what's right and walk together as we ought to do. We ought to set that example before him so he can learn it. If we don't, he will stay that way. We're to admonish him. That's a call for a congregation. All right? That's the first thing we're supposed to do. Second thing, when we see Mr. Puny Soul sitting over there, halfway through the service, he went to sleep. Why? Because he can't go on any further. You say, well, what's happened to Mr. Puny Soul? He's tired. He just doesn't have the conditioning to get through. He's going to quit. You know it. He's going to quit. What do you do with him? 
comfort. Say comfort. Yeah, it says comfort. It says to encourage him, to comfort him, to to speak to him. Consoling is part of that. Encouraging is a big part. But here's what I find very interesting. It's not the common word for comfort. This word is the word for tell a story. Say, huh? Yeah. It means to tell a story. That means this is not going to be given one sentence and he's straightening up. You have to read him the whole book. Is that going to take time? Yes, it is. This man needs a lot of talking to. A lot of encouragement. Because he's going to quit and you know it. So you've got to go alongside and encourage him and encourage him and encourage him and encourage him. Like reading a novel of about a thousand pages long. Don't stop reading. Don't stop speaking. Keep talking. Keep talking. Keep talking. Keep talking. That might make you tired. But that's what Mr. Puny Soul needs. Yes, he is weak right now. You keep building him up. Keep building him up in the Lord. I would say take to him the word of God, just like the others. Teach it to him. Talk to him over and over and over and over and over. Don't give up on Mr. Puny Soul. That's the ministry called to a congregation. Because you know when Mr. Puny Soul quits, there are three or four other puny souls in training. And they're going to say, hey, I quit too. We had a remarkable instance years ago at a, a summer camp. I think it was a summer camp. We, it was one of the hottest ones we ever knew in Indiana. And that's rare for it to get above 95 or so. And, and everyone just melts. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, you guys say, huh, they're pretty weak up there. Yeah, the way they are. But uh, they get up to 95 and they're melting. And the first day of camp, this girl came on. She was about 11 or 12 years old. And she got in the heat and she knew how to faint. Now, not that she just faints. She knew how to make herself faint. And sure enough, she thought everyone was looking and boom, down she went. And we're like, what happened? Where's the heat? Thirteen other people passed out. We were dragging them up and down the roads to the, the nurse, that poor nurse. On the first day, she said, I quit. There was another one who wanted to quit. What do you do with all these painting people? All because the first one says, watch this. Boom, down she goes. We've got puny souls. What do we do with them? You've got to keep talking to them. We had to work with that all week long. Every day there was one less who fainted. It was kind of nice. But it took all week long to get through it. That was tough. But he says to encourage them. Don't let that word get away from us. That is a full-time ministry. Encouragement, 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 encouragement. Because there are quitters. And then you've got Mr. Deadweight. He just sits there. He has no strength. He just sits in his boat. Drags his oars. What do you do with him? What's the word say? Help. Help? What do you mean by help? That means you step in there and help. 
you help him pick up his arms. You help him grasp the oar. You help him make the movements. You help him pull. You make him pull again. You make him pull it again. You help him. The word here literally has the idea of grasping onto him. Grasping on tight. Holding him very tight. Most of the time we say, no, push him away. No, that's not this ministry. This ministry is to work with him. Sometimes it feels like work for him. But you're doing the work. You're right there with him all the way through it. You're fighting it out with him. Does that sound exhausting to you? You say, I can't do much before coffee in the morning anyway. And this guy's a full-time job. And then you've got to go out and do his and do yours. And Paul says, yeah. Why? Because he is a brother in Christ. And we're not to leave him sitting in a boat like that. He needs to learn how to use his arms. He needs to how to learn to, to row with the team. He needs to work with that. But sometimes he's completely dead weight. Help him. Not hurl him. Help him. Help him. Help him. Those are hard ministries, folks. That's just a touch of inreach. When Paul writes his second letter, he talks about Miss Busybody, too. She sprang up out of nowhere. They weren't expecting that one. But these are the ministries that have to keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, in order to achieve something very, very important. The goal of the church is maturity in Christ. We are not to leave anyone behind in that process. Nobody. I'll show it to you. It's in Ephesians chapter number 4. Just so you know what our, our task is before us. Ephesians 4, it starts in verse 11. And he says that God gave to the church leaders. Apostles, yes, evangelists, prophets. He gave uh, some as pastors and teachers. But he gave those ministries, those individuals to the church for a purpose. And the purpose in verse 12 is to equip the saints for the work of service. They're equipping the congregation for ministry. So that the body might be built up. Who's building it then? The congregation. But who's ultimately building it? Christ is. But he's building, right? And he says, you're my workmen. And you're building. And we're building together. And what is our goal? Verse 13. Until we all, except for Mr. Unruly, Mr. Puny Soul, and Mr. Deadway, right? Until we all, notice that word, attain to the unity of the faith. Until we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. Till we all attain to a mature man. Till we all attain to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Until we are all like Christ, our ministry of inreach is not done. It's not done. Mr. Puny Soul needs to be like Christ. Mr. Deadweight needs to be like Christ. Mr. Unruly needs to be like Christ. And that's our job to minister to them 
and with them as they mature in Christ. That's our task. That's what we're called to do. And when we do that, verse 14 says, then we are no longer to be children. We were tossed here and we're there by waves, carried around by every wind of doctrine, blown over like a tree, in the trickery of... I added that, you noticed. The same idea. Blown away by the waves, the trickery of men, the craftiness of deceitful scheming, outrunning our strategy to the end, all these other things. That's immaturity. He says that won't be the result when we all mature in Christ. You see the solution then? It's not get them out. It's to build them up. We've got a job. And how do we do that? In verse 15, we speak the truth in love. And we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And then you've got the whole body. The whole body that's fitted together and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. It causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Boy, does the church today need to hear these words. That's our ministry in the church. That's our inreach in the church. If we fail there, folks, forget what else goes on. The outreach will collapse because the inreach will rot. We can't afford it, can we? We can't afford that. Our ministry is to build up, to strengthen. And in case you're wondering, okay, this is going to be hard. This is going to be real hard to do. Paul says, yeah, I know it. So I'm going to give you a series of things you to do while you're doing this. Say, really? Yeah. Try this. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Have you read that list before? It's right on the heels of Mr. Unruly, Mr. Puny Soul, and Mr. Deadweight. That's what we're called to do. That is not easy ministry. But it's rewarding ministry. It is rewarding ministry. And as we learned last night, especially, this is not something we're called to, that we've got to figure out the rules, the strategy, the strength. We don't have to sit back and figure out how are we going to do this. It's Christ's church. It's by His power. It's through His Word. It's through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who changes lives on the inside out. We've got, folks, one of the easiest jobs on earth. You say, really? Depend upon Him. Let Him lead you. Let His strength be yours. Let His wisdom be yours. Let His power be yours. Just go out and open your mouth in ministry. And let Him bring the results. That's what He calls us to do. But it's going to take an investment, isn't it? Think about that. Pray about that. Because all of us are called to that ministry together. That's what we're called to. That's our inreach. That's our inreach. Heavenly Father, you know us well, and you know how we need to be encouraged. It's so easy, Lord, to view things from our own, our own eyes, our own logic, our own strategies. So much easier for us to 
think that we benefit by subtraction, when your word speaks so clearly, so clearly on this passage, we would fail if we missed it today. Our congregation will not succeed in anything if we should try any other route but the one you have designed. I pray, Lord, that as a congregation, we've spent two days talking about the church, that you might do a great work among us. One that just brings great glory and honor to your name. One that benefits each and every every member of this fellowship. One that sees each and every one of us more like Christ today and even more like Christ tomorrow than we've ever seen before. Help us, Lord, to realize the task before us. And may we not be careless in what we have been called to do. May we not be masking over those things that have rotted us out on the inside. May we not be so quick to strive in one direction that we forget the need that we have for supply from one another. May we not be found rowing a boat with many people turned around the other way. But may we see this church built as Christ is building. And may it bring great honor and glory to your name. And may many souls be matured in this fellowship. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being part of your church and the great program that you're involved in right now. We are blessed people, that is true. But now we have responsibilities to encourage us in it, we pray. Help us not to forget. In Jesus' name, amen.